1: everybody. Welcome back to Crime Weekly. I'm Stephanie Harlow.
2: And I'm Derek Lavasser.
1: So today we are finishing up with the Brittany Drexel case. But before we dive in, we just wanted to remind you guys, if you're trying to get your criminal coffee and you didn't want to kind of pull the trigger yet because we were back ordered and we had a lot on our plates, we are pretty much up to date now. So if you're ordering now, you should be getting your order within a week. And all the people who have gotten it so far, as far as we can tell, they say they love it. I hope that if you don't love it, you're telling us and being honest with us because we do want, you know, obviously accurate feedback, but I love it. I drink it every single day, and uh, everyone I've heard, you know, who's who's gotten their coffee has said that they really like it, and it's really good. And thank you guys so much for tagging us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, and using hashtag Mugshot. We really appreciate it because it makes it easy for us to find when you get the coffee.
2: That's right. I've been reposting everyone who's been uh throwing up their their photos of the coffee. There's been some really good ones actually. Uh two things I would say and you guys are already kind of doing it. If you really like the coffee, go on, leave a five star review. It you know it allows us to see the feedback. We really appreciate it. And also, as far as the big mission with Criminal Coffee, it's about fighting crime. And we now have a live ticker on the website. So if you go to criminalcoffeeco.com, click on the fight crime tab, you will see a ticker, a live ticker there where as you guys are making purchases, money is going right into that account that will be donated to a cause that we all decide to donate to. So we're really excited about it. That's what this is about giving back to others. and and making a difference while having some good coffee. So like Stephanie said, thank you to everybody who's joining the mission, enjoying the coffee, and we're excited to see how big we can make this.
1: So we'll dive right into today's episode then. Um, We did spend a good deal of the last episode discussing one of the major suspects in the abduction and the assumed murder of 17-year-old Brittany Drexel, but today we're going to be focusing on another early person of interest, Raymond Moody. We talked about how police and crime scene investigators were seen at the Sunset Lodge in Georgetown, South Carolina, in the summer of 2011. And they were there specifically because they'd gotten a tip that Raymond Moody had lived there at the time that Brittany went missing from Myrtle Beach. We also talked about how the day after Brittany went missing, Raymond Moody was pulled over and issued a ticket for speeding in Surfside, South Carolina. And from the timeline, We know that Brittany stopped texting her boyfriend, John, around 9.15 p.m. on the evening of Saturday, April 25th, and then not even 15 minutes later at 9.27 p.m., her cell phone pinged off a tower in Surfside, South Carolina. Two and a half hours later, Brittany's cell phone pinged for the last time in McClellanville, South Carolina. Now, I went to Google Maps, and according to Google Maps, it would take 14 minutes to drive from Ocean Boulevard in Myrtle Beach to Surfside Beach. It's just right up the coast. So that travel time does really line up with the timeline we got from Brittany's boyfriend, John Greco. And it makes sense that Brittany, who texted her boyfriend constantly was somehow, for some reason, prevented from doing so right around 9.15 p.m. In February of 2012, the media reported that the Myrtle Beach Police Department had received new information that month in relation to Brittany's disappearance and Raymond Moody, but they wouldn't reveal what that information was, with Captain David Nipes simply saying, quote, "...let me advise everyone, all at the same time, that there is no new information on this case. Mr. Moody was a person that was investigated in this case. His hotel room was searched last year, and he is one of many people that we have investigated during the course of this investigation." This is still an active investigation, and we continue to follow any and every lead possible, end quote. Captain Nipes said he didn't know if the media outlet that had reported that there was new information had maybe simply misunderstood, or if it was just new information to the news media that they hadn't had before. But the papers did print a new name of another young woman that no one had really been talking about, another young woman who had disappeared four years before Brittany Drexel, and Raymond Moody was named a person of interest in both disappearances just weeks apart. Crystal Souls was a 28-year-old mother to a five-year-old son, Mitchell, when she vanished without a trace on January 24, 2005. She had called home to ask one of her parents if she could get a ride from Shaw's Corner Store in Andrews, South Carolina, but her mother was at work and her father, who was fighting cancer at that time, was feeling very sick and couldn't go out to pick her up. Crystal told her father it was fine, they didn't live far from the store, and she would just walk. Her son Mitchell, now a grown man, told the son, quote, it was during that walk that she vanished or was kidnapped or whatever happened to her. Mitchell remembered being very close with his mother, and before she'd gone out to the store, they'd been laying in bed together watching Smurfs cartoons when Crystal told her son that she loved him and she would be right back before leaving. But Crystal didn't come back, and initially, her parents didn't think that she had encountered foul play because Crystal was struggling with drug addiction, and it wasn't uncommon for her to disappear for days at a time. However, this time was different. Because although Crystal would go off and do her own thing from time to time, she would always call and check in with her son, no matter where she was or how long she was gone, because for all her issues she was a very good mother, and she loved Mitchell with all of her heart. Mitchell said quote, "My understanding is that she got involved in the wrong crowd at that age. obviously, I wasn't able to really tell, and I guess my grandparents didn't want me to know what was going on, but I do remember her quite well." She was definitely a great mother who took care of me in any way she could. I always enjoyed being around her and spending time with her. We were really, really close. End quote. So if you remember, Raymond Moody was released from prison and moved back to South Carolina in 2004, just a year before Crystal vanished without a trace. And where he was living in Georgetown is just 17 miles west of Andrews, where Crystal went missing from. And the reason the police suspected that Moody may have been involved with Crystal's disappearance. That's really never been revealed. But Captain David Nipes of the Myrtle Beach Police said, quote, Is it possible they're related? Yeah. Is it possible they're not? Absolutely. You never know. You check every angle. Everything's a possibility until you rule it out, end quote. But Crystal's family does seem to believe there's a strong possibility that Raymond Moody is responsible for Crystal's disappearance with her son Mitchell saying, quote, it's a good possibility with his background and what's coming to light now. I'm thinking there's a strong chance he could have had something to do with it, end quote.
2: So it's interesting, the theory that Raymond Moody could be involved in Crystal's disappearance as well. She's never been located, correct? Correct. Okay. So little older, 28 years old. The last victim of Raymond Moody, I believe, was eight years old. Or nine years old.
1: Nine years old, but remember, this nine year old was at the end of six other young victims who ranged in ages from, if I remember correctly, six to seventeen. So Right.
2: So he doesn't he doesn't discriminate. He's all over the he's all over the range as far as he's more so looking for a victim of opportunity, a window where he can capitalize on a bad situation for them as opposed to a specific type of person. So is it possible that he was involved in this? Yes, absolutely. It's possible he was involved in many others that we're not aware of. As far as how Raymond Moody might have been connected to this case, I can tell you, and it's not that far of a fetch to think that we would do this as investigators. When you're looking into uh, missing persons, specifically women, young children, the first thing you're going to do is look at the radius and see who's a registered sex offender in that area. Right? You know that that's your first core group of people you can look at. Where are they living? How close of a proximity are they to the victim, where she was last seen, and what was the crimes that they committed? You'll look into the level of their offenses, and also were there any similarities between what they did before and what is potentially going on here? And if you have someone who has a similar M.O., maybe you go and visit them and talk to them and ask them where they were on the day of the victim's disappearance. Were they in the area? Maybe check their phones. A lot of times. With uh, registered sex offenders, and I've said this before, because they are out, but still under the supervision of law enforcement, we can go in there in many cases and look at their computers, look at their phones. That's part of their release where we can see if they're looking up child porn, you know, sharing child porn, etc. So it, it wouldn't be difficult to go in there and look at their computer to see if they were maybe scouting out a specific area or maybe exchanging text messages with someone else on their phone, where they might have said something that could implicate them. So, very common to look into registered sex offenders in the area as potential persons of interest, potential suspects, because again, they've done it before; they can do it again.
1: Yeah, and Raymond Moody being named a person of interest for Crystal's disappearance, it could have been something as simple as the police going and talking to him about it, saying, "Hey, where you? Where were you on this day?" and him not being able to give like a solid alibi. So. They may may not have even had anything like concrete or anything physical to tie him to Crystal's disappearance, but just the fact that maybe he couldn't remember where he was or he lied about where he was that would be enough to name him a person of interest, but not enough to like place him under arrest. Right?
2: That's right. And so the reason I was saying it is very possible that he was involved. It also could be as minimal as what you just said: registered sex offender. They went to see what where he was in the area and you know, if he had an alibi, he might've had an alibi for all we know. Um, all they were saying is he was looked into. They're not saying that it didn't check out where he said he was. They're just saying, Hey, yeah, he was questioned about it as he should have been. He's a level three sex offender. He's most likely to reoffend. You should be talking to these people all the time, whenever something like this happens.
1: But do you think it's weird that Crystal went missing four years before Britney and then Raymond Moody is named a person of interest in uh, Britney's disappearance and then a few weeks later named a person of interest in Crystal's disappearance that long after her disappearance?
2: I don't think it's weird because what happens is obviously every year there is a turnover in police departments. And what you sometimes have happen is you may have detectives in there that are on the back nine, maybe have a year or two left, and they're not as bigger go-getters as, as some of the younger guys. So they're sitting at their desk, they're counting the clock until they retire and they're maybe not being as proactive about this folder that's been sitting on their de- desk for three years, where you have a younger guy come in there and he's got the case now, and all of a sudden he's watching the news or he's watch- looking at dispatch logs from surrounding police departments like you should be doing. He sees this case come across the TV, realizes that there's some similarities between the case that he has, and he takes the initiative to reach out, look into the the specifics of Brittany Drexel's case, and says, "Hmm, in the similar location." Could be considered a similar victim, similar disappearance standards. Maybe there's a connection. That's a good detective. That's how you solve cases. So not, not odd at all. That's what should be happening.
1: I agree. But, you know, this kind of Raymond Moody thing happened and everybody was talking about him for a minute. And then for the next few years, no one talked about Raymond Moody. Basically faded into the background, especially... After that flurry of activity in 2016, with the FBI's announcement that they'd received information from a jailhouse snitch, Taquan Brown, that Britney had been taken by a then 16-year-old boy named Timothy DeSean Taylor, Before being murdered and fed to alligators. But in March of 2017, a new search began in Georgetown County. And this search focused on a wooded area off Foxfire Court near Highway 521, where agents could be seen using shovels in the woods as well as earth moving machinery. So I'm looking at this area and I'm like, okay this is not by the Stash House, right? This is not an area by the Stash House because the Stash House is in McClellanville. This area is in Georgetown. And I'm like, where is this area by? So I Googled Raymond Moody. I tried to find out his past addresses. I texted you and I'm like, can you use your like super special police stuff to look it up? And you were like, probably not a good idea. So I went on one of those sites where you got to pay and find out. And I found out his past addresses. So I Googled all his past addresses. And, um, this was not an area, like I said, near that alleged McClellanville stash house, where Taquan Brown had seen Brittany being held at, you know, with the the people raping her and her getting shot and being carried out in a carpet nor was it an area near the Jacksonboro trailer of Brown's cousin Herman. This area was in Georgetown, South Carolina. Foxfire Court is seven miles away from the Sunset Lodge where Raymond Moody was living in 2009. It's 17 miles from the home that he is listed as owning and where he's listed as having resided in 2010 on Rose Hill Road in Georgetown. This is the same address he was living at in 2022. And it's four miles from where Moody is listed as having lived in 2014 on Brandy Lane, also in Georgetown. In fact, the alleged stash house where Brittany was, you know, reportedly being held, that was located at 1819 Old Collins Creek Road. And it's actually the furthest address from this location that they were searching. It's over 20 miles away. I think was like 21 miles away. And in May of 2019, that house burned down. According to Chief Mike Bowers with the McClellanville Fire Department, the cause of the blaze was undetermined, but he did say he believed it was suspicious as the property had been abandoned and had no electricity. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. That's going to bring us to our current year, 2022. After a very long time with no updates, no arrests, and no new information, an arrest was made in the disappearance and murder of Brittany Drexel.
0: Brittany's mother, Dawn, and Chad, and Father John were promised that every resource would be used to find the answer of what happened to Brittany. Where did it happen? How did it happen? And why did it happen? The why may never be known or understood, but today this task force can confidently and without hesitation answer the rest of those questions along with the who is responsible. The who is Raymond Douglas Moody, who lives at 5502 Rose Hill Road in Georgetown, South Carolina. His date of birth is May the 9th of 1960 and he is a white male with an extensive sex offender criminal history. The Georgetown County Sheriff's Office charges against Mr. Raymond Moody are murder, kidnapping, criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. All of these charges occurring within the jurisdictional limits of Georgetown County, all of which occurred on April the 25th of 2009 and all of which detail Brittany Drexel as the victim. Charges against Raymond Moody were made possible through investigative findings and evidence that led us to a possible site where Raymond Moody buried a deceased, Brittany Drexel, on or about April the 26th of 2009. Human remains were discovered at that location on May the 11th of 2022. The remains were recovered by the FBI's Evidence Response Team and transferred to Georgetown County Coroner Chase Ridgway. Coroner Ridgway, along with the Charleston County Coroner's Office, positively identified through dental records the remains we found were indeed Brittany Drexel. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division also performed DNA analysis and corroborated the coroner's findings.
2: It's terrible. Well, I know he says we might never, never have the why. Let me tell you the why. Raymond Moody's a sick bastard. I mean, there's really no way around it. There's nothing funny about it. It's He's a sick individual. He's a monster. Should have never been in a position where he could have done that to Brittany. Um, so he's not going to tell you the why, but we can tell you the why. He's he, He's not human. He's a monster. And so... There probably was no reason for doing it. He just wanted to. And and that's all that there is to it. There's no, it's not deeper than that. Uh, he saw Brittany. He saw an opportunity to capitalize on a situation where he was able to do it without other people seeing him. And just like every other time where he's had an opportunity to do it in the past and was charged with it and went to prison for it, uh, he took advantage of it. And yet the only difference is here. He went to prison for it. And our lovely justice system let him out where he had the opportunity to do it again. And I don't want to go too far right now because we have a lot more to go, but it's there's no way around it to, say, to not say that the blood of Brittany Drexel is definitely on the justice system's hands. They let this man back out. I was afraid of this when you talked about Raymond Moody in episode one, and here we are having it confirmed. It's terrible what happened to her, but it's even more terrible to think that we as a justice system had the opportunity to prevent it. And we didn't. We failed her. We failed her family. And we failed any other potential victim that he's responsible for that we may not even know about. It's absolutely terrible. I'm trying to not use profanity here because I don't want to get uh, crushed on YouTube. But that's my initial thoughts. Well, I I
1: definitely agree with you. But, you know, I'm not used to being the voice of reason here. I do agree with you. But uh, the blood is on Raymond Moody's hands, right? Like, obviously... Obviously, the I agree with you. The justice system is super flawed, and when we both, you know, said we don't think that these people should get out. Level three, like the, the amount of children that he did this to, this is not a guy who's going to just go to prison and, and change and like be like, oh, I don't have these, you know, urges anymore. I'm good. I'm cured. Hallelujah. That's not going to happen, right? But at the same time, like. <laughs> these these convicts they find a way to to behave as if they reformed, they find god they behave themselves they make the right connections they got advocacy groups out there like trying to get them out things like that um there's there's a lot of moving parts but in the end it all leads back to raymond moody it's his fault just like i wouldn't blame his parents for screwing him up I blame the individual. At at the end of the day it was his choice to to make the decision over and over again to do this.
2: I hear what you're saying and and it's not a debate because at the end of the day it doesn't change much but and yes, Raymond Moody is responsible for his actions, but he he has he has never proven to anyone that he's capable of making a rational decision. He's a sick person and he has this impulse that he cannot control. And so he's Not capable of saying no to something that he shouldn't do. That's why we have a justice system. Yes, it's to reform, but it's also to protect citizens of this world, of this country, from individuals like this. That's why we have a parole board. They're supposed to be able to see through the things that you're talking about. People who come in there and find Jesus or act like they're reformed, they're supposed to look at the specifics of the offenses that they previously committed and see the risk worth reward. Is it worth risking others' safety? to allow this person to be out as a free man with an opportunity to live a normal life after what he's done. And that's their job. Their only job is to see well, who this person is and if they're safe enough to be let out. And they chose to let him out. And if they hadn't, if they had done their job correctly, even though he's still ultimately responsible for this, he wouldn't have had the opportunity. So I, it's very easy to blame the sick guy and I I, I don't disagree with you, but I think I'd be remiss if as a former law enforcement guy who's quick to defend people in our system when they do the right thing or you know when I think they're doing the right thing, this is an absolute travesty because based on what you've told me about this individual, I don't know how any reasonable person could look at his jacket, his folder... And say, regardless of what he says in the meeting, oh, I'm reformed, I feel better, whatever it may be, to look at the narrative of of just the one case you explained to me, this nine-year-old girl. I'm reading the first page, and I'm closing the folder and going, get back to the cell. Sorry. That's it. You can't be reformed from that, in my opinion. Is she going to get a second chance? No. She's still living with it every day. So neither are you. So the fact that they let him out, inexcusable, in my opinion. In my opinion, it's absolutely inexcusable. I hope they're listening to this. They absolutely screwed up and they should not be in that position.
1: No, no, I definitely 100% agree with you. I just didn't want to, you know, give him kind of a pass. Like, uh, oh, no, there's just, no pass. Yeah, he's just getting pushed along by the the current of the justice system. Hey,
2: you know what I said after the first episode, right? And a lot of people in the comment, I mean, if that's my daughter, we're not going to have to worry about a parole board, right? So that wouldn't have been an issue if, it, if I had my say. But I'm saying if we're going to go that route, then it's on the people who have been trained, educated, worked their way up the ladder, and now they're part of the... You are the the gatekeepers. You're the last line of defense before this person is let out in the wild. That is a huge responsibility. You are the difference between it happening again and keeping Brittany Drexel and others safe. It is not something that should be taken lightly. You need to look at the facts and circumstances of the offenses previously that, that occurred, and you have to, regardless of what they're saying to you now... Taking consideration that the victims of those cases are real human beings and they're still out there. And there's no way to go to them and say, poof, you no longer remember what happened to you. They don't get that redo. So neither should the offender. And the fact that they allowed him to go free, to live his life like nothing happened, and have this occur, I would hope that if these individuals who were on that board when they heard about this, they're probably still thinking about it. I would hope if they have a conscience. They're sitting somewhere thinking about what they did and the decision they made. Because although they didn't do it themselves, they unleashed Raymond Moody on that community. And I don't say that lightly. I doubt it.
1: I doubt that they're thinking about it or that they, you know, this is one of how many, how many, like thousands, thousands of people that get out and then reoffend. It's the same thing with the CPS system, how many kids get murdered and abused in their homes every day when they have, you know, caseworkers assigned to them, but the system's so overloaded, the caseworkers don't get there. And then do you think those, you know, CPS is like, oh, oh, we feel so terrible. No, they're really pretty much just trying to cover their asses so that they don't get blamed for that. And I think that's the first instinct of somebody in a governmental entity like that it's more like we don't want to be blamed for this we don't want to be like standing up when the musical chairs music ends and we don't want to be the ones without a chair so we got to try to pass the buck
2: tell that to britney's family
1: i agree So Raymond Moody had been in the Georgetown Detention Center since May 4th on obstruction of justice charges, and those obstruction of justice charges actually dated back to the day he was pulled over the day after Brittany went missing. Brittany's remains were located on May 11th, and although it was initially reported that Brittany had died due to manual strangulation, Georgetown County Coroner Chase Ridgway recently reported that, quote, due to the condition of the remains manual strangulation could not be confirmed, end quote. According to officials, Brittany was raped and murdered at the Santee River, and then her body was moved to Old Town Avenue, where her remains were found in a wooded area close to the Harmony Township subdivision, approximately two and a half miles from the Sunset Lodge. Now, as you can see from these Google Earth images, It's a very rural and heavily forested area. And from these Google Earth images, you also can get an idea of how close these two locations actually were to each other. So the details of what exactly happened to Brittany and how she ended up crossing paths with Raymond Moody, those are still foggy, at least to the general public. Although Jimmy Richardson, the man who will be responsible for putting together a case if this goes to trial, he's given a little bit of information. He claims that the investigation has collected around 100 boxes of evidence over the last 13 years, and depending how Raymond Moody responds to the charges, they will either create a guilty plea or they will begin putting together a trial. Here is Richardson speaking about some evidence they have that we have never heard of. In an exclusive interview with our investigative correspondent, Ann Emerson, 15th Circuit solicitor Jimmy Richardson says there is new video from the Myrtle Beach Strip that shows Brittany's progression down, the Ocean, Bo- down Ocean Boulevard. There's also video of the vehicle that Moody was in.
3: Prosecutors will now have to connect those dots Richardson says he does not
1: believe that Drexel was kidnapped from Myrtle Beach.
3: Um, I don't believe from from all the evidence that is there that a kidnapping occurred in Myrtle Beach. Um, you know, what may start off as a consensual um, ride at one point may turn non-consensual and into a kidnapping at another point. And I believe, based on what I've seen that all of that took place, the kidnapping, the rape and the murder in Georgetown.
1: Now, Moody was pulled over in Surfside the following morning for a speeding ticket. Richardson believes, says that he believes Drexel was already dead at that point, but they don't know why Moody was in Surfside that day.
3: Um, That's one that I'll have to dig into, but I think. By the next morning, um, Brittany was no longer alive, so um, I don't know exactly what that trip to Surfside was about. That's something that we'll have to learn.
1: Okay, so there's a lot I want to ask you about from this short clip. A lot. I was jotting down notes, but let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Um, so there's there's like three separate things that happened in this this clip that I want to talk about. First of all, they say there's new video. And this video now shows Brittany's path as well as the vehicle that Raymond Moody was in. And my question to you would be there's no possible way this is new video They've had this the whole time, right?
2: I would agree. I mean, I think they'd have it and they just didn't want to disclose that information. But I do think this old video that they had, once they had identified Moody, they probably went back and looked at the video and looked for a vehicle that was registered to Moody during that time to see if it was in the area. And sure enough, they're looking for whatever specific vehicle. And here it comes right in the general vicinity of where Brittany was on the initial video they saw from at the beginning of this case. But now they have that one of their main suspects, one of their main persons of interest, they have them at the area right before her disappearance or right before she goes off the radar.
1: Yeah, but they were searching Moody's hotel room like a year after she went missing. So if you've you're searching his hotel room, you have, you know. Basically, if you're able to trace her path, like did they see her get into his vehicle? This is all very curious because if they saw her get into his vehicle, then that means he's the last person who saw her alive, and I think that's enough for an arrest.
2: It's so interesting because I don't know what to make of that either with the with his statements because he said something that it might have, and we're we're looking into it here, right? But it's something that where he said might have started off to be consensual. Where I'm, a, I my takeaway from that is that she voluntarily got into a vehicle, uh, but I, he didn't say. Was it with Moody or was it with someone else and and Moody ultimately followed them? You know what I mean? That could be part of it, too, because I have a hard time believing based on what we know about Britney and based on her getting help from another individual when some other guys were coming on to her or making cat calls or whatever. I have a hard time looking at pictures of Moody, although I'm sure he looked different back then. Would I have a hard time believing she would get in the car with someone like that when she, she has an agenda, she wants to go back to the hotel. She's not having a great time. She wants to pack. She was just going to get her sandals. What would make her turn around and say, sure, I'll hop in a vehicle with you. That's heading the opposite direction of where I was intending on going. So two scenarios here, she voluntarily got into the car with Moody or she voluntarily got into the car with someone else who Moody then followed because he knew that person or just saw and wanted to follow the couple out to whatever area they went to. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. But that is really fascinating that he would say that. I was under the impression, based on Moody's previous uh, modus operandi, that he would have just grabbed her in a moment of an opportunity where he could get her and take advantage of her without her having an opportunity to defend herself. So this is is fascinating.
1: Well, listen, I do want to mention, because remember that nine-year-old Carrie Harding, um, recently, after we recorded that first episode, she came out and she was talking more about this census arrest. And she said, you know, when and this is going to come into play a lot of context later when we go through another story of somebody who knew Moody. But she said he had initially sort of like approached her and he was like, oh, you shouldn't be out here. Alone, Like, you're not safe out here alone. And then he was like, let me bring you to a police station. And that's when he kind of had put her in his car and was driving. And then she realized, oh, we're not going to a police station. So it was kind of different than the original articles I had read. But this is what she's saying now happened. And I'm going to say, based on, once again, another story I'm going to tell you later, this does kind of seem to be his MO, where he comes in as sort of like a protector, as sort of like a concerned, you know, strong man, like, oh, little lady, you shouldn't be out here alone. The streets aren't safe for you. Let me take you to safety. And then when they're like, OK, and they're trusting because, you know, they, they feel like, oh, maybe I'm not safe. You know, you're you're walking the streets of of Myrtle Beach and maybe you don't feel safe. And you kind of take that that open hand and only to realize that they, they mean to do you harm.
2: Yeah, I worked a case in uh, Honolulu. It was the Honolulu Strangler. Similar situation where he uh, raped and murdered multiple women and he started And there was a couple surviving witnesses who basically said he came on as like, hey, you got to be careful. There's a lot of bad characters out here. Let me at least give you a ride to a, a lit area. And obviously they never made it there. Uh, you're absolutely right. That could be the situation. But it's so perplexing to me because if we're to believe the club promoter, Peter, Peter is his name, right? Peter Brazwitz. Yeah. If we're to believe him, you know, he had said that he asked Britney about this and she was like, oh, I do it all the time. Like, it's not a big deal. I've, I've been making this walk by myself. So for her to kind of brush it off to someone she knows who's allegedly volunteered to drive her home or walk her home. But yet- accept the offering of some random stranger in a vehicle, just because he said it's dangerous as well. That doesn't seem like something she would do, but I guess I wasn't there. And, you know, do I know her personally? Do I know what the situation was at that moment? Were there other people around that kind of scared her? Just like this previous occasion that you had talked about, where there was a group of men that were kind of harassing her and she enlisted the help of another stranger to get her out of that situation. So to kind of backtrack a little bit, she does have some history of doing something like that. Maybe there was a group of individuals around that she was frightened by, and Moody was the alternative. That's possible, too. And I
1: will, you know, forgive me for stating the obvious, but you aren't a woman, so I- I am yeah, a woman. That's true. I'm a woman, and we are, are. Are Oh, okay. I am. I know. We're complicated beings. So, especially young women, and I was one of those at one point too. What 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 I think happened? Because if if I was in the similar situation, I'm going to say to Peter and the guys, like, Nah, now nah, I'm good. I'm good. I do this all the time. But I don't really feel good. I just don't want to feel like, you know, oh, like you don't have to take care of me. I'm strong. I'm tough. I got this shit. I'm good. But then you get out on those streets and you're like, shit, I'm not good, man. I don't feel safe. There's like, there's rowdiness happening. It happens to me all the time. People are always like, oh, let me do this. Let me help you. And I'm like, no, no, I'm good. And then I'm going to do it. And I'm like, I don't want to do this, man. I'm not good. I'm not good. But we don't want to ask for help, right? We We think we're tough. We think we're strong. We think we don't need help, or we at least want other people to think that um because you know there's this very big push against being a damsel in distress and a, and a wilting daisy we want to look strong and we want to look like capable and we can handle it and um and that's why we always say you know it doesn't make you look weak or like you know you you're you know you need help to ask for help it's just it's protecting you when you need help walking from a store to your car when it's dark and you know there's not a lot of cars in the parking lot don't feel bad to ask somebody to escort you out to your car don't think that you've got it because if somebody comes up behind you who means you harm and surprises you you're not going to be prepared for that so there's no shame in asking for help but I do feel that women do feel the shame sometimes in, like, asking for help, especially from men, because we want to feel like we don't need that. When in reality, whether it's a man or another woman or whatever, strength in numbers, right? It's always better if you're with somebody else because you have a better chance of not um, falling victim to somebody who wants to do you harm. Because a person like Raymond Moody probably wouldn't have approached Brittany if she was with a couple of her friends or if she was in a group of people. He's not going to approach her. He's approaching her because, like you said— there's that uh, that opportunity. She's alone. There's nobody there to be like now, nah, Brittany, you're good. Let's go or to protect her or to deter somebody like Raymond Moody.
2: Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because even if she voluntarily got into the vehicle to, to have Moody take her the rest of the way home, it seems like based on her her pings from her phone that almost immediately she was going in the opposite direction of the hotel or the motel. So you really got to ask yourself, it might have been just consensual for her to get into the vehicle, and as soon as she did, something might have occurred, and and that's why he was able to go the opposite direction with maybe very little resistance, because I don't see why Britney, if she was just trying to get a ride home, would agree to go in the opposite direction with a complete stranger. So maybe that's what he means as far as consensual, like her getting into the vehicle voluntarily, but then when she's in the vehicle... You know, it's it's too late at that point. Moody was a big guy. Brittany was not a big person, and and it wouldn't take more than a couple seconds to. subdue her
1: yeah but here's the thing richardson keeps saying like we don't think the abduction happened in myrtle beach we think the abduction and the murder happened in mcclellanville so here's my so interesting what do they have to say that because i keep going back to the texts between britney and her boyfriend john if what they're saying is true and this has been the story since the beginning she's texting him all the time they're texting back and forth all night all day like forever not just that night not just that day and then all of a sudden her texts stop at 9 15 and about 15 minutes later they're pinging her phone's pinging in that surfside beach location even if she had gone willingly with moody she would have still been texting like oh john i just got in someone's car or i'm heading this way or there's like this guy just told me about a party in surfside you know south like Carolina. she did
2: with the other guy
1: that's what i'm saying she would have been keeping him updated and letting him know but for some reason as soon as she got in that vehicle she wasn't able to use her phone so if if what they're telling us is true And there was no more text after that. And I tend to believe there is or there would be some sort of text message of Brittany saying, I got in someone's car and I think we would know about that. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what Richardson's what he's really getting at there. It's like they know so much more than we do, which is fine. But it's like it doesn't make sense. So I would really be interested to know, like, what do you have? What do you know that makes you so sure to say that? Because he does seem certain.
2: He does seem certain. But. It could also be him misspeaking. He could be wrong. He's he's saying, he's speculating. I agree with you. More than likely, he has something. But everything you just said, yes to all of it. We are all under the assumption that as soon as, you know, almost within minutes after she went missing, she stopped texting. Well, for most people, that would be an indication that she's no longer capable of texting. And that's why she's not responding, even though John was threatening to call her mother. So that would, if anything's going to get her to respond, it's going to be that. And she didn't. So she clearly did not have her phone on her. I guess you could make an argument that she was with someone that she didn't want John to know she was with. I'm just not buying that. So I really do hope we get more clarification on it. And maybe Richardson's story changes before it goes to court. Or maybe like you said, they're just more pieces to the puzzle that were never released that once they are, we're going to look at each other and go, okay. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, it doesn't even really make sense that she would be with somebody she didn't want John to know about. Because like you said, with that other young man, when he like helped her get off the beach and brought her back to her apartment, he was in her like hotel or motel room with her. She was comfortable telling John that it seemed like they were very open and he wasn't like the kind of jealous type who would be like, "What? you were in your motel room with another guy like it's over, you know, so she's not going to feel uncomfortable. And from what we know... Raymond Moody was an absolute stranger to her. So why would she feel uncomfortable telling John about him? And, and I'm going to talk about it in a second, but they, they've they already said, like, no, there's no accomplices. There's no other, other charges being brought against anybody else. Um, they believe that Moody worked alone. And they, they don't have anybody else that they're looking at in, in relation to him. So it's not as if he even worked with like somebody she did know and, like you said, maybe followed somebody or was lured to a place with
2: him. It, it's just him. It's fascinating. I, I really want to know more.
1: Well, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Many people have spoken out about Raymond Moody in the wake of his arrest. And the first person I want to talk about is Carrie Harding, the young woman who was eight years old when Moody abducted and raped her. The young woman who was brave enough to identify him after the fact and put him behind bars where he belonged and where he should have stayed. Carrie said that she only found out that Moody had been released from prison early when he was named a person of interest in the Brittany Drexel case, and she immediately felt that he was responsible. And I would like to make a comment that I think that's absolute bullshit if your vic- if, the, if you were a victim of somebody and they were sentenced to a certain amount of years in prison and then they get out early, you should be notified before they even get out. Like you should know if your attacker is walking the streets again. Is that not a law?
2: Uh, I, it's not a law, but I thought that was the practice to let not only for uh, someone who's been raped or anything like that, but just domestic abuse victims, uh, assault victims. If the if the offender is getting out of prison, I think that all victims should be made aware that their assailants, their offenders are now. Um, capable technically of getting to them again if they wanted to. That's That should be like a number one thing. Yeah,
1: there might be like a motive to do that. Like, you don't know if this person's like mad that you put them behind bars. Like, she was the reason that he was in prison for over 20 years. <laughs> she should have been informed that he was back out there. But she only found out about it after he was named a person of interest. So she contacted the police and she told them to check her records to compare what Moody had done to her to whatever evidence they had about Brittany's abduction. Carey said, quote, They did do that, and the police told me it was uncanny how closely the stories and circumstances matched, end quote. Carey believes that there are more victims of Moody out there who are afraid to tell their stories, and she believes that Moody should face the same fate he forced onto Brittany, saying, quote, I actually want him to no longer breathe. I hope they give him the death penalty. We need to put this monster where he belongs, a grave. End quote. Standing ovation to our girl Carrie there, because absolutely. And she has every right to say that. And uh, we agree.
2: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
1: Another person who has spoken out is the current girlfriend of Raymond Moody, a 54-year-old woman named Angel Vouse, who's been in a relationship and living with Moody for 15 years, meaning she was with him at the time of Brittany's abduction and murder. She was also with him at the time that he was named a person of interest in Britney's disappearance. Angel Vouse claims that even though Moody has confessed and he was able to lead authorities to the body, she's still standing by him. Angel, who, like I said, was dating Moody when he became a person of interest in 2011, she says she didn't think anything of it at the time because, quote, I mean... They never had anything. They dropped everything, let it go. So nothing came of it again until a week or two before he was arrested. End quote. Angel claims that she did not know Moody when he was in prison. Um, She had gotten together with him a few years after he got out of prison. And they'd been together for a few years before she found out about what he'd been in prison for. Apparently, she found out from like a different person. Somebody like let her know. But she decided to stay with him because He was a different man. And she said, quote, I'm shocked. I'm stunned. I don't really know that side of him. I know the person he was with me. He was fantastic to me. End quote. All due respect, Angel. That does not matter. (laughs) That that does not matter.
2: Angel sounds like a real winner. Oh, yeah. Um... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be rude. I don't know how to say it, but. I mean, I find out my significant other is a sex offender. That's kind of a deal breaker for me. Just, you know, just my thoughts.
1: Yeah. There is um, another individual out there who agrees wholeheartedly with you, but I'm not going to talk about that. But trust me, um, there's somebody who's close to the situation who happens to know this person and has plenty to say worse than what you said. About Angel. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm not surprised by that.
1: I went down some some severe rabbit holes here. I mean, I found Angel's name initially when I was looking up Raymond Moody on that uh, like thing where you can find people. It's crazy the stuff that they show you on there. But I found her through there because it was showing there was a social media profile attached to Raymond Moody's name. So I clicked on it. It led to her Facebook page. And you couldn't see a lot because I wasn't friends with her. But I went through her profile picture and three profile pictures over. Who do I see? Raymond Moody, shirtless, walking like a little chihuahua on the beach in her in her Facebook page. And I was like, oh, shit, this is Raymond Moody. Like, I thought it was just one of those random things where, like, somebody's social media profile gets attached to yours on accident. But no, it, it was her. And at first I was like, is this her dad? What's going on? But then I was like, oh, no, they are together. So another one of Moody's past romantic partners has also spoken out. Now, bear with me. The story is a bit complicated. You might wonder, like, Stephanie, where are you going with this? But I, I think it is very important and it does provide a lot of context into what Raymond Moody was and who he was and also how he happened to be back in South Carolina after being released from a California prison, because when you're released from a prison, you're supposed to go and, and be paroled in the state that you did your crime in. You know, that's that's typically how it works. So how did he get from a California prison to South Carolina? We're going to find out. So there's a man named Ernest Merchant. And in 2017, he published a nonfiction book titled Lost and Found a Memoir. 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 Did I say that right? It sounds wrong in my mouth. Memoir. 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 That's right. Okay, it yeah. sounds right. So here's the book right here. I went on Amazon and bought it because I had to read it. It's basically his life story, which is a very interesting one. I found the book to be extremely well written. I was actually surprised. The synopsis of the book says this is not your stereotypical gay hairdresser, addict, convict story, if there is such a thing. <laughs> Um, it's it's a really good book, actually. And it goes on to say that the memoir spans five decades of Ernest's life, where he explores many issues such as sexual diversity, drug addiction, crime and punishment, and social prejudice. And like I said, I thought it was a very interesting first person perspective. You can pick it up on Amazon if you want to give it a closer look and read the whole thing, because there's lots in there that I'm not going to talk about. But the long and short of it More long. The long of it is Ernest was an inmate at the Soledad State Prison in Monterey County, California, when he met Raymond Moody, who he refers to in his book as Boone. Merchant has claimed that Moody was his prison husband. And I want to preface this by saying that I've done some fact checking, I've done some research. Um, Merchant wrote this book far before Raymond Moody was arrested. It was published in 2017. So he's not like capitalizing off of Raymond Moody being arrested. He doesn't even mention Brittany Drexel in this book. So I tend to believe what he writes. And he definitely had a relationship with Raymond Moody because in this book, Ernest mentions becoming very close to Moody's grandmother, Jean, And I found her obituary, and it says that she survived by her special friend and chosen grandson, Ernest Merchant. So there's clearly a relationship here with this family between Ernest and Raymond Moody. The majority of the book is simply about himself, his life, his experiences, and Raymond Moody just happens to be a part of those things. In this book, Ernest writes, quote, From the moment I spotted him on the yard, I was interested in only one man, the muscle man the man they called Boone. He seemed different from the other men. I watched him stride confidently across the yard, dressed in white shorts, shoes, and a ball cap. His perfect physique, tanned, deep golden brown, tattooed torso rippling with muscles and shiny with sweat. I was smitten. It would be absurd to deny it was anything more than pure lust at first sight, but it was more than that too. It was in the way he carried himself. He had an air of detachment that fascinated me, and the first time I had the courage to get close enough to initiate conversation, I swear he blushed. I was captivated. He was soft-spoken, well-mannered, and slightly awkward in response to my overt flirtation. He immediately seemed the most unattainable man on the yard, and I immediately set out to win him. My personality has always gravitated towards the most challenging men, and I have paid heavy dues for my victories— Boone was no exception. I was to pay some very heavy dues for winning his affections, end quote. And I mean, this does check out with what we know about Raymond Moody, what we've seen of Raymond Moody when he was younger. You know, you mentioned when we played that clip of Moody being interviewed, he's a big guy. He's tall. He's got a lot of muscles. He was really tan. Ernest goes on to talk about what Raymond Moody was like in prison. He preferred to be outside, and when he was outside in the yard, he was always doing some sort of physical activity. He was the quarterback for the football team, captain of the baseball team. He played tennis, basketball, handball, and pumped a lot of iron. And when I say he's the quarterback of the football team and captain of the baseball team, I mean like in prison, not outside. Like they have teams and stuff, and they'll play against each other. So that's what he was doing. But if Moody was inside, he was working in the kitchens, which was his prison job, or spending his evenings in his cell, creating what Ernest called beautifully intricate hand-tooled leather goods that would give Moody some extra money and it would allow him to purchase a few comforts while in prison. According to Ernest, after what Moody had done, most of his family had abandoned him except his mother, but Moody refused to ask her for money. When Ernest arrived at Soledad, Moody had already been there for about 15 years, and he had become established there. He had a tight circle of friends who were mostly in for life, and he'd gained respect and clout, so basically the other prisoners knew he was not to be messed with. Now, when Ernest had arrived at prison, he was advised to find a husband as soon as possible and then move into that man's cell and keep his head down during the year and a half that he would be there before being released. Finding a husband in prison would mean that Ernest was protected, and when he saw Moody, he knew that that was who he wanted. But this became more apparent to him one day when he happened to be in the showers alone, and he found himself in a situation that could have been potentially dangerous for him when three other inmates walked in and began talking to him suggestively. Just when things were getting real sketchy, Raymond Moody appeared in the doorway of the showers, and he scared the three guys off. Raymond told Ernest that he'd seen him enter the showers alone and he was worried that something might happen so he'd come to investigate and he told Ernest, quote, "You shouldn't be any place all alone, puppy." End quote. Puppy was what Ernest was called by some of the other inmates cuz he was like, you know, small and cute apparently. Um, Not long after this, Moody told Ernest that his cellmate was being transferred to another prison and Moody wanted Ernest to move into his cell. And he told them, like, you know, I don't expect anything from you. I just enjoy your company, the way you conduct yourself. Like, it doesn't have to be anything more than that. But, of course, Ernest wanted it to be more, so it worked out. Now, on the day that Ernest moved into his cell, the guards had hung a just married sign on the door. And their first night together, Moody told Ernest to be patient with him because he was new to all of this, which I took to mean that Moody had never been, like, sexual with another man before. After this, Ernest turned their shared cell into what he called a cozy little home. While Moody was at work, Ernest stayed in the cell and busied himself with his domestic duties, crafting rugs from old sheets, sponge painting the walls, making a toilet seat out of cardboard, and creating throw pillows out of old t-shirts. Now that he was Raymond Moody's husband, things for Ernest in prison changed. Moody made it clear to everyone that Ernest was taken, and he would sometimes leave Ernest with the other girls in the yard while he went off and played sports, but he always kept an eye on him, and if another man approached Ernest, Moody would be on the scene within moments, asking the man what his intentions were and scaring him off. In his book, Ernest writes, quote, He was taking some ribbing from some of his sports buddies over me, but I think most of the guys understood. A man can only go so long without someone to call his own. I liked belonging to someone and knowing I was protected. I felt truly safe for the first time in a long time. End quote. In their cell, Ernest and Moody spent their time together, enjoying each other and watching television. Moody taught Ernest how to work with leather, and the two men spent hours talking and finding out about each other's lives. They discovered that they'd been born only six days apart, and they'd come from similar traumatic backgrounds. Apparently, Raymond Moody had come from a family of alcoholism and abuse, and Ernest writes, quote, "...he told me of his father berating his mother around the house during one of their many fights." He told me of him as a little boy following behind them, picking up pieces of broken glass and putting furniture back in place. He told me of himself at five years old, finding his mother naked and bleeding in the bathtub with her wrists slashed from one of her many suicide attempts and of the shame of finding her passed out from drinks on the front lawn for all of the kids on the school bus to witness. He told me of his father's brutal dominance over everyone in their home and his constant criticism of his family." End quote. Apparently, Moody had joined the Navy, he'd married young, and left Georgetown, South Carolina. He then moved to California, where he and his wife had become parents to three children, all daughters, girls that had grown up while their father was behind bars from the age of 23. As they got closer and lived together month after month, Ernest claims he never asked Moody why he was in prison, saying, quote, I showered ate, played cards, and walked the yards with murderers, rapists, thieves, and addicts on a daily basis, long enough for it not to matter anymore. One does not ask another inmate what they are in for. It's considered invasive and a violation of prison etiquette. If a person chooses to divulge that information— Chances are you're considered a trusted friend. When I agreed to move in with Boone, I knew that a man who had been down 15 years with five more to go was not a petty criminal and must have done something terrible to get a sentence of that magnitude. I didn't care. I didn't judge the men I lived with every day for what they did, only for the way they treated me. We had all been judged already and were receiving our punishment. End quote. We are going to take a break really quick and we will be back to finish off with Ernest's story. According to Ernest, Raymond Moody was kind and gentle and thoughtful with him, and he began to feel that it was impossible that the man he knew and loved could have done anything bad enough to be given such a long sentence. One day, Ernest told Moody that he loved him, and Moody responded by saying that if Ernest knew who he really was, he wouldn't feel that way. Raymond Moody didn't elaborate on what he meant by that statement at that time, but as the months passed and the date of Ernest's release drew closer— Moody eventually did come clean, telling Ernest that he was in prison for rape and handing him his court documents so that Ernest could see for himself exactly what had landed Moody such a long sentence. In his book, Ernest writes, quote, There were six victims. They ranged in age from 8 to 17 years old, all female and all strangers to him. They were randomly selected, stalked, and forcibly sexually assaulted. His rampage lasted two years before he was stopped. I asked him why he did it. He said, I don't know why. I had the impulses and thoughts for a long time before I acted on them. I felt it building up in me until I couldn't control it anymore. After the first one, it got easier. I became someone else, someone that didn't care. I knew my life was over. I knew it was just a matter of time before I got caught. I imagined I would force the cops to kill me when they came for me. I've asked myself every one of these questions over and over the last 16 years. Pop, I was sick. That's the only answer. Don't try to make sense of insanity. It will only drive you crazy too. Please believe me when I tell you that I am not that person anymore. Time and prison has changed me. I would never hurt anyone again. End quote. Eventually, Ernest was released, and he was separated from Raymond Moody, but Moody had told Ernest that he was the greatest love of his life. They did write to each other every day, and Ernest even contacted Moody's mother when Ernest was out of prison. He said that Moody's parents, who had not seen their son in five years, were considering a trip from South Carolina to California to visit, and Moody's mother, whom Ernest described as a sweet but sad woman who loved her son very much— She actually wanted to meet Ernest, but Ernest talks about how, you know, Moody was raised very religious and his mother was very religious, so she kind of didn't, like, accept that they were together, like, in love. She kind of just preferred to see Ernest as Raymond Moody's friend. As time went on and Ernest worked on putting his life back together after being in prison, he thought of Raymond Moody and what possible future they could have together. And he writes, quote, The knowledge of his past and the complications that came with it weighed heavily on my mind. But I told myself, I had four years to sort it out one day at a time. Boone wrote to me every day. His devotion was unwavering. I wondered, would he find another man to fill my place in his life and in his cell? But he always reassured me he had no interest in replacing me. He said if I could wait four years for him, he could do the same for me. A part of me hoped he wouldn't. End quote. When it was time for Moody to be released, it was complicated because, as I mentioned previously, he's only going to be able to be released to the state where he had committed his crime. And uh, Ernest was talking about, you know, like he has to basically live somewhere. He's not employable, obviously. I mean, he's he's getting out of prison with his record. It's going to be very tough for him to find a job. He's pretty much going to like end up on the streets. He could, you know do something bad he's not going to he's he's going to go a bad way. So the only way for Raymond Moody to be released to another state would be for him to be released to a family member who would then be responsible for him. So the decision was made that Moody would go to his hometown of Georgetown, South Carolina, and Ernest would move there with him even though he didn't really want to live in South Carolina at all because he'd already created a life In the four years since he'd been released from prison, he had friends, he had a job, you know, he had like a place to live. He was doing well. So Raymond and Ernest flew from California to South Carolina in June of 2004, and Ernest says that Raymond Moody's father set them up with a temporary lodging situation at a place that booked by the week, the Sunset Lodge in Georgetown. And Ernest claims that he and Moody lived happily together for a few years, and Moody was officially released from parole in 2007. And this was a time that should have been happy for Moody and, you know, for Ernest finally they can kind of like be free, but something was happening inside of Moody that Ernest could not put his finger on. In his book, Ernest writes, quote, other than registering for life as a sex offender, he was completely free for the first time in 24 years. That's when he seemed to change, or perhaps when I began to notice it. He seemed restless and discontent. Nothing seemed good enough. He was oblivious to our good fortune, and his attitude was negative and resentful. End quote. Ernest said that Moody had come into some money and he purchased a Harley Davidson motorcycle, fulfilling what he called a lifelong fantasy to own one. Ernest goes on to say, quote, looking back, there were plenty of signs that only became crystal clear after it was too late. He became withdrawn, secretive, and physically distant. There were blocks of time unaccounted for. And long solitary rides on his motorcycle. He stopped bringing me lunch, calling several times a day, and stopping by the shop during my workday. He did very little around the house anymore. He spent more time away from me and grew hostile if I questioned his whereabouts. He became belligerent, resentful, and harshly critical of me. I seemed to go from the one who could do no wrong to one who could do nothing right. I was hurt and bewildered. End quote. And it was around this time that Ernest discovered Moody was having an affair with a married woman. Um it appears that her husband actually worked at the wood shop that Raymond Moody worked at and they were friends with Ernest and Moody and they would like come over and stuff and Ernest had no idea this was going on and I believe that this woman is Angel Vows to be honest but I don't know for sure but the timing it matches up because if you Sounds about right. Yeah, that t- that timing sounds right. Um 15 years that they'd been together when when he's arrested in 2022 it it makes sense. So um Ernest and Raymond Moody they parted ways in 2008. After Raymond Moody's 2022 arrest Ernest Merchant told ABC News That after they separated, Moody returned to a life of partying, and Ernest was not shocked that Moody had been arrested in connection with Brittany Drexel, recalling a time when Moody had told him, quote, You know, Pop, maybe they shouldn't let someone out of prison after keeping them so long. Maybe it's just where I belong. End quote. Um, Yeah, I think so. I think so, Raymond Moody. So there's a lot about Raymond Moody and Ernest's book, which, once again, for those of you who didn't catch it, it's called Lost and Found, A Memoir. If you want to grab it, read it for yourself. I think you should. It's a very riveting book, actually. There's a lot in here that that doesn't concern Raymond Moody that I found very interesting. You can find it on Amazon. But what do you think about all that? What do you think about all that?
2: Tell you what, there's a lot to digest there. (laughs) That was probably one of the longest segments where I was listening as opposed to kind of interacting. And there is a lot that you could dive into there as far as their relationship I won't go too deep there. I don't know the significance of that as it relates to this, but I will say a couple things. The big takeaway for me is a zebra doesn't change its stripes. And that's the case with Raymond Moody. He went a very long time by living a structured life and doing the right thing. Technically, if you, you know, quotation marks, he was in prison. So what really could he do? He did keep on the straight and narrow for a little while while he was outside prison. But at the end of the day, he is who we all believe he is. He's a monster. And he was able to contain it for a little bit of time, but eventually that person, that person inside of him, that demon came back to the top. And that's my problem. He can go 30 years, 24 years in this case, 25 years of doing the right thing. All it takes is that one day. And that one day is where someone else's life is affected for a very long time or it's ended. And that's the case here, so that's that's my argument with that. But I've already so he's
1: like a ticking time bomb, right? Basically, that's he's it. like he's not going to yeah. change. And I mean, he could not going change. He could have honestly thought he had changed, right? Like there's there's a possibility when you're in prison, and like you said, you can do anything. That he may have been like wanting to believe he had changed. That like if I can control it in here, when there's like no temptation and there's no possibility that I could. Do this, like I can control it on the outside, because we don't want to think the worst of ourselves, and we don't want to believe that there's something in us that we can't control. But fact of the matter is, like, I don't think they can control it. Like, I don't think they can.
2: No, there's only there's only a couple options there, but Well, you know, well, well, we won't go there. Uh, I will say it was fascinating to listen to you break that down. That book, you know, I, w- I was a little. Taken aback that, you know, kind of like Angel, Ernest decided to stick it out with Moody after he confessed to uh sexually assaulting six women, six some of them younger, children. Girls. They
1: were all under the age of seventeen. Okay. Yeah.
2: All all under the age of seventeen, and he decides to stay with him. You know, I'm call it like it is. I said it for Angel, I'll say it for him. I don't know what I don't know what Ernest was thinking there. Um, but it was fascinating to get into the mind of Moody before Brittany Drexel and to see that kind of evolution where he's in prison for a heinous act. He's able to keep it in check for a while while he's in prison. You're getting to see a different side of him. And yet, as soon as he gets out, Shortly after that, in the context of, you know, how many years it had been since he had been a free man, it didn't take that long when you really think about it before him to start to wander his eyes to start to think about other people and opportunities out there and to become disgruntled with Ernest because, yes, it was convenient while he was in prison. It wasn't what he truly wanted. And now he was exposed to it again where he had opportunities to. Dive into those urges. He was, these individuals, these young women were accessible to him again. And it was fascinating because Ernest himself acknowledged that he was this monster. And I really do believe that he felt, like you said, got it under control and he was no longer that person. But as I have been saying this entire series, that's great. He may have really thought that, but risk worth reward. His freedom, that reward for him, is not worth the risk it poses to all of our children. I'm sorry, it just doesn't. So, but but very fascinating segment. Great research by you on that one to go that deep. I mean, you really went you really went all in. Uh, I personally would not be reading Ernest's book, but anybody out there who wants to, you go right ahead. I got the synopsis from my girl Stephanie Harlow, so that's all I need. It was a
1: really good. <laughs> Listen. I didn't know there's no like glossary. So I didn't know how to find the parts <laughs> that I needed to find. So I was just like No, it's
2: impressive that you did the yeah.
1: Well, I'm just gonna start from the beginning and and go. And and you know, Ernest, I mean, uh Raymond Moody comes in this much into the book. And by then I was hooked. He's a very good writer. I'm just gonna say that. Um, so yay, Ernest. Uh what I will say is I noticed a pattern when I was reading about Raymond Moody. I noticed a pattern. From what we kind of maybe feel like happened with britney from what happened to carrie harding the eight-year-old victim and how moody presented himself in prison with Ernest as the protector right oh i followed you to the bathroom when you went in there alone because i thought you needed help you shouldn't go anywhere here alone pop you know like let me protect Mm -hmm. you let me take you in i'm the big strong guy i want to be in control i will take care of you. It seems that he has this aura about him that initially drew Ernest to him. This is a a person who I will be safe with. Now, obviously, he doesn't hurt Ernest because Ernest is a consensual partner. But what if Ernest hadn't been a consensual partner? Would Raymond Moody have taken what he wanted anyways? Possibly like he did with Carrie, like he did with Britney. And that may be what he uses. You know, it kind of gives me a little bit of like like an American psycho vibe. You know, uh, Ernest said he seemed very detached, seemed very cool, always kind of in control, always very calm and soft-spoken. He presents this sort of face, this sort of persona to the people around him and even his girlfriend angel was like i don't know what you're talking about he's never been like that with me he's he's perfectly wonderful to me he presents this persona i'm a safe person i'll take care of you i'll protect you and then he attacks i think that's probably how he he may draw his victims in and, and i will say i don't believe that that Brittany and carrie and the other you know, six girls that he attacked were the only ones. There's more out there. There's there's definitely more.
2: Yeah, I kind of saw it a little bit as like a Trojan horse, right? Not exactly, but a little bit where he's trying to get behind the guarded walls of his victims, where they're concerned about their safety from these bad individuals. So what he does is present himself uh, as a protector from these bad individuals so he can get behind that wall and then attack from the inside. So it's very fascinating that he did it in his with his previous victims. He kind of did it in prison with, with Ernest. And it's possible that we'll learn he did that with Brittany as well. So really fascinating. And that's why I do think there is value in what you took out of that book. Because without that information, we may not have a deeper look into the modus operandi of Raymond Moody. So now that we have that, it might be something that we can apply to a potential theory as to what happened to Brittany. And I think it's... It's compelling,
1: yeah, I think there's there's a great amount of context there and and that's why I like to to go that deep and kind of find these obscure references because it's important like we don't know who Raymond Moody is. We see this mug shot of him. we see this picture we see a quick clip of him yelling at a reporter. We don't know who he is, and I think someone like Raymond Moody probably got a kick out of the fact that he could like manipulate and control the situation and it wasn't even just about you know going in for the kill. It was about you know, manipulating these people, making them feel safe with him when inside he knew what was going to happen and he knew he was a monster. It almost was like this extra thrill for him. And um, and I do want to say that I think a big part of why he killed Brittany was the fact that he had left his other victims alive. And because of that, he ended up in prison. So now he's like, OK, I can do the same thing. But this time, if I eliminate the witness who they can't identify me, there's no way I'm going back there. And I'm not going back there. So I can't leave any of my victims alive now.
2: That's right. That makes that makes perfect sense.
1: So a lot of voices that are, you know, rising up in the wake of Raymond Moody's arrest, they're rising up for Timothy Deshawn Taylor. Since the FBI have officially announced that they are confident they have the man in prison who's responsible for the death of Britney Drexel, the only person who's responsible. After this announcement, a lawyer for the Taylor family said, quote, Thus far, the FBI has not extended us the courtesy of providing an update. Hopefully, the FBI will have the decency to issue a statement clearing Mr. Taylor with the same fanfare as when he was falsely accused, end quote. I love the shade.
4: Well, saying to the glory be God, the mother of Timothy, Joan Taylor, spoke today at the Mason's Lodge in McClellanville, South Carolina. She says the media frenzy that came with the accusations impacted every aspect of their lives for years. The claims tore apart her family's character and shook them to the core. At a couple of points she choked up, visibly upset, her family surrounded the podium and gave her the strength to carry forward. SHE SAYS TIMOTHY WAS SUSPECTED WITHOUT ANY CREDIBLE EVIDENCE. HER SON WAS NAMED BY ANOTHER SUSPECT IN 2016, LINKING HIM TO DREXEL'S DISAPPEARANCE. TIMOTHY WAS GIVEN MULTIPLE POLYGRAPH TESTS, EVEN FAILING ONE OF THEM. POLICE LATER LINKED HIS FATHER IN ON ALL THIS, CLAIMING THEY TOOK DREXEL TO A STASH HOUSE, RAPED AND SHOT HER, THEN PUT HER BODY IN AN ALLIGATOR POND. TIMOTHY'S INVOLVEMENT CHANGED THOUGH, WHEN THE PERSON WHO NAMED HIM KEPT ALTERING HIS STORY. Joan Taylor says, even with getting the actual suspect, the damage has been done, saying Timothy's name and face will forever be linked to this case.
3: Our family stood by him and consistently spoke out against the false accusations that too often are directed at people who look like us. An age old story in America. Today, I stand here surrounded by family and close friends. And speak on Timothy's behalf because my son has endured enough.
4: Yeah. Joan did ask the media in South Carolina to help set the record straight and allow Timothy to speak to cameras when he's ready to do so.
2: Yeah, that's tough to be accused of something like that for so long. And we saw, we saw the clip from Chad, uh, Brittany's adopted father. You know, that's, he said pretty much with confidence that he knew that he was somehow involved and he wasn't. And if anything, uh, I'm assuming because you haven't mentioned it, Chad hasn't come out and publicly apologized to Mr. Taylor, uh, and that should be probably the first apology. I know law enforcement, the FBI can come out, but just from what I saw, the bigger accuser public-wise was Chad. I don't know if I'm missing something or forgetting something. Was there information that the police publicly stated that they were looking at Taylor or they were you know, believing he was potentially involved? Or would they just acknowledge that he was interviewed? Just want to no, make sure I get it right. No,
1: the police definitely said they. They said multiple times, like we think he has further information. We're keeping him. Like no, they definitely, <laughs> they definitely joined in on that. So,
2: th- so no doubt about it. Public apology is necessary by both parties equally. And you're right. Now that you're saying it, it does refresh my memory. You're right, absolutely. And a public apology should be, uh, should have already been, been put out there for Mister Taylor. Uh, to clear him any wrongdoing and to make sure that the public knows that he is not in any way shape or form involved with this the situation. And I believe that Chad as well, although I know he's going through a tough time right now because again, this isn't this isn't closure. it's somewhat resolution. It must be absolutely terrible to to learn that with hundred percent certainty now, your daughter is never coming home. And I'm sure he kind of believed that at the core, but to have that, Tangible evidence to support it. I'm sure it's like he's re victimized all over again. So I'm not taking anything away from Chad or his family, but I do hope with time, and he may need some time, that Chad does eventually come out and publicly apologize for the accusations he made. And maybe one day in this crazy world we live in now, those two can get together, maybe even behind closed doors and talk about it. And I hope for the sake of everyone that 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 can happen, but that's ultimately going to be up to Mr. Taylor because. He was the one who's really affected by this. And he's the one who needs to give that forgiveness, not us.
1: Oh, you're adorable. <laughs> you hope they can get together and talk about it. That's really sweet. I know it's a
2: crazy world. It is not but...
1: going to happen. Um, no. <laughs> no. And I think that- Let this... me ask you, why not? Because- Why not? Why not? It's just, that's not people. That's not how people work, man. I, I know it seems nice and it's like the nice ending. Like if this was a movie- that would be a great ending. You know, if this was a movie, um that would be very sweet and heartwarming because we want to see those kinds of endings, but in reality, we don't usually enact those kind of endings, right? We hold we hold grudges. Um there's going to be a part of because people are have a lot of pride and and those statements were bold and I think there's going to be a part of the people who were claiming this that are like, well, we had reasons for thinking that and, and you know, they're going to justify it and, and make excuses and, and they're going to, you know, they're, I, I think there will be an apology and I do agree Chad Drexel deserves time to to now fully mourn this now that, that they know for sure. Absolutely. Um, but I do think there will be an apology made, but it won't be like it'll be a formal apology made. Which which it should I hope be, so. but it's not going to be, you know, this thing where they're going to like shake hands and grab a beer after. No, no,
2: no, wishful thinking. Yeah, you know, I know it doesn't change anything, and I'm sure there's going to be some lawsuits and stuff as well. I mean, that's just
1: I would expect so. Yeah,
2: yeah, I would agree. I, I don't blame them one bit. I don't blame them one bit. But we'll see how it goes. There's no winner here, right? There's no winner.
1: No, and I mean, um. Timothy Deshaun's mother, Joan, she's called on law enforcement to stop the practice of disclosing unfounded leads and names of potential suspects without credible evidence. And she says that doing so causes real life consequences and a lasting disparaging effect on so many, particularly those in the black community. Um, Yeah, it's it's obviously I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, you talk about Raymond Moody getting out of jail and him having a hard time getting a job well with in a way it's going to be the same with timothy Deshaun taylor who's got this sort of like black cloud of suspicion hanging over him like even if it's not coming up on background checks people in his community know that he's like allegedly connected to this and he's never really been nobody's ever really come out and been like ah no it's not him even now the fbi was just like we've wrapped up that like lane of investigation they didn't come out and say like are bad. we we didn't we didn't mean to do that. like, sorry. Uh, and they may be doing that for reasons that are legal and they don't want to sort of implicate themselves. But, yeah, it's it's tough. As for Taekwon Brown's accusations, he was the jailhouse informant. According to Jimmy Richardson, they just weren't true. Richardson went on to say, quote, The FBI didn't make that up, all right, but it did send the FBI off on a tangent. When you reach out in a case like this and ask for help from the public, that will lead you to a lot of tentacles. I'm not trying to take up for the discredited informant. I'm just saying that when you ask for help, you get help. Some of it's no good. Some of it's good, end quote. And it's kind of like your job to figure out which is good and which isn't good and then follow the ones that are good and not like go down the path of the ones that aren't good. For like so many years.
2: Let me say this real quick. I don't agree with the disclosure of what you're doing, but what you just said, you know, it's your your responsibility to follow up on the ones that are good and the ones that aren't good. To be honest, you don't know which ones are good or not good until you follow down that path. And sometimes, in many cases, you follow leads only to find out that they're complete bullshit. And you don't find it out until you've spent eight to ten, maybe sixteen hours talking to people, investigating things cross-referencing information to find out there's no validity to it. And then all you got to do is backtrack to square one and start on the next. About
1: eight to 10 years, man. This happened in like 2016 and it took them several years to figure out like Taquan Brown's like full of shit. How did it take that long to figure out that dude was full of shit?
2: I I honestly don't even know if they ever come. I think it started when he started, he started embellishing on the story and having more details. I think they probably started to realize wait a second, now he's disclosing details that were you would definitely remember the first time too. I told you when you said it, that was something to me that would absolutely raise a red flag. Uh, details about shotgun shells and things like that. Like You're not going to forget that. So the fact that later in the investigation, he started remembering more things, uh, that's a problem. And so they might have already at that point started to reconsider uh, Mr. Brown as a potential Person that should be considered a valuable a valuable witness, but I I hear you I and there's no perfect system but I do I would say if a, a jailhouse informant comes forward and says I have information, whether you believe them or not you have to follow it up as far as their ability to confirm or discredit what he was saying. You know I can't disagree with you there. I mean ultimately I wasn't part of the investigation. Uh, I would like to think them that they would have came out quicker and said hey we have ruled it out as as valid but they didn't they just they just didn't
1: I agree you definitely have to follow every lead like even if you think it's it's no good you've got to follow it that's how you do your due diligence I've had
2: I've literally I've literally had it happen where I get a phone call and I'm cringing as I'm seeing it but the problem is even if you don't follow up on it and god forbid you're wrong you'll never forgive yourself and so it's one of those things where as unlikely as it sounds you're chasing your tail sometimes and it's it can be really discouraging. But yes, that's 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 all I wanted to put out there.
1: No, it sounds very likely that you would be chasing your tail sometimes, and that's just part of it, I think. Um but I, it's, I, uh, so
2: discouraging I, I
1: disagree with their methods and I think that there was quite a bit of confirmation bias happening here. And I'm just gonna put that out there. That happens. It happened here, I believe. Um, You know, as of yet, there's no word on what's going to happen to Taquan Brown for his false reports or if he'll face any consequences. But I do think there's a lot of people who owe the Taylor family and Timothy specifically an apology, because even if law enforcement had a plethora of credible evidence, we never heard it. We never saw it. What we did hear. What we did see, it wasn't enough to start the witch hunt that went on for years. And I'm not even talking about the police and like, I'm talking about the public, man, like everybody out there. Like, we never heard enough to go uh, so hard as some of these people did on the Taylor family. And I don't think that law enforcement had this plethora of evidence. And I think you would probably agree with that because if they had this evidence, they would have arrested him and uh, they wouldn't have just like kept him under this, like, basically trumped up charge in order to try to press him for information that he never gave up.
2: Yeah, they might have had a plethora of information. Doesn't mean it's true. Evidence would lead to an arrest. So I I do agree with you there. They might have had a plethora of of stories being told by multiple individuals or whatever, but being able to confirm those stories, that's a different thing. And I said it when you mentioned at that time that if they had that, they would have put that into an affidavit and they would have had an arrest warrant signed by a judge, which they never even attempted. That's why. Yeah. You can't go to court with a jailhouse informant's information Without anybody else confirming that information.
1: And I think like it would be understandable. Like the public would understand if the FBI came out and they're like, yo, you don't even understand, man. Taquan Brown and these other inmates, like they threw so many names at us, so many different like places we had to check. We had all these agents on and we were running around for months trying to like track down all these people. Like it was exhausting. Like, just say that we understand. Like if they just threw a bunch of shit at you to the point where it was like exhausting your resources and your time and your manpower. And that's why it took so long to figure out like you were running in circles, we will get that. But to just be so like, oh, no, like, trust us. We did what we did the right thing. It's just not it's not great for like communication and transparency, especially when you've clearly fucked up. So at the end of the day, this isn't a happy ending for anyone. Um, You know, at the very least, Dawn, Chad and John get to bury Brittany and they have a place that they can go to talk to her or spend a few quiet moments of reflection with her. She's able to be brought home, but, you know, she still has a family and loved ones who will never get to see her again And who never knew that the last time they saw her was the actual last time they were going to see her. And as far as Raymond Moody, like, my final thoughts are very simple. Like, I'm sorry if he had a shitty childhood, which is clearly what happened. Like, if what Ernest was saying is true, Raymond Moody had a shitty childhood. I'm sorry for that. But in this moment, in these circumstances, I really, I don't care. I've said it before. Tons of people, millions of people out there have shitty childhoods. Worse than this. Horrible parents, abusive parents, terrible circumstances, and they don't go on to hurt other people. They don't go on to re-victimize. So at the end of the day, it is a personal choice. And Raymond Moody made his, and he's where he belonged, I think, far too late. I think he's there far too late, but he's there.
2: Yeah, there's not much to say that we haven't already said, is there? You know, it's one of those situations where I have an easier time accepting the idea that sometimes- There's individuals out there who haven't been identified yet, who commit crimes, and it takes law enforcement a little while to identify them and apprehend them and put them in prison. I feel completely different and have a much harder time accepting the idea that all that work has been done, that person has been apprehended, they've been put into prison where they should be, and yet due to complacency and and the way the laws are written and how policies and procedures are carried out. Individuals like Raymond Moody, not just Raymond Moody, because as you said, this happens all the time, um, are given an opportunity to go back out there, amongst our children, and our loved ones, with the ability to do it again, and I just think that's something that we really have to reconsider. There are many crimes, most crimes, where offenders can be reformed and be a a, a contributing member to society. You committed a robbery. Uh, you assault things like that. And I'm saying like a simple assault, not a sexual assault, where I do think sometimes good people make bad decisions and there can be clear signs of uh, a changing and evolution in the person.
1: Drugs, things like
2: that. Absolutely. Substance abuse, things like that, where more they're affecting themselves than others. And those individuals, the reason why I'm so willing to give them a second chance is because Worst case scenario, hopefully they don't escalate their level of aggressiveness or whatever they're doing, and they go out there and they use drugs again, or they commit a larceny, or they still change from a car, whatever it may be. Okay, you know what? You let them out. Shame on us. They got to go back to prison and, and, and continue to reform and change. But when you have a sex offender or a rapist, and you know what they're capable of, they've shown you what they're capable of. And you know what they could potentially do again to someone else. I don't accept it. I don't accept the idea of giving them a second chance. Some may agree with me, some may not. I told you guys before yes, I'm a former police officer, so I try to stay as objective as I can, but I'm a father first, I'm a a husband first. And ultimately, I can't imagine something like this happen to someone I care about, but then finding out that the person who committed that crime had already been in prison for the same or similar infraction. I don't know what I would do, and I'm not going to say it on here because that could probably get me in trouble. So that's where I've, that's how I feel about that. And then the other thing for all of our listeners and our, our viewers is just to drive home the fact again, because I see a lot of similarities with this case, just like Lauren Spear, where you out there are good people. Most people in this world I'd like to think are good people, but there are monsters amongst us. And unfortunately, we live in a world where you have to think like that because although you may not think that, you know, you would ever do anything like that. There are others who are sick individuals who are deliberately out there for that sole intention. And so when you're going out with, you know, and you're going to be alone, use your gut, take the the safer route, bring someone with you. Even if you think you're going to be fine, play it safe, have someone else with you. Even if it inconveniences them, even if it makes you look like you're scared or whatever, and I'm talking guy, girl, I don't care. Play it safe because I'd rather see you here than be covering you on the show. And I do think there's no perfect system. There are opportunities where if it's meant to happen, it's going to happen. There's no perfect system. Protect yourself. But we can do small things to decrease the odds. And that's what my message is to all of you out there. And I'm sure that would be the message from Brittany's family is to, you know, travel in groups, stay in public areas, make sure it's well lit. Don't take the chance. It's not worth it.
1: Yeah. And I do want to say, like, obviously, I've been rough on the police department, but I do give them credit here. They stuck with this case and they ultimately solved it. They They didn't give up. They continued to do searches. This was important to them. Um, but on one last note about Raymond Moody getting out, you know how there's like a chain of custody in police investigations? So if like something gets tampered with or something goes missing, they know who to blame. There should be a chain of custody in in like sex offenders getting back out. Like there should be a log of who makes this decision, who passes it down to the next person who's like, yes, I approved this decision. There should be a log so that those people can be held accountable and those people can be held responsible when that offender goes out to re-offend. Because if you're that sure and you feel that safe, because most of the time, listen, I feel like an asshole for saying this, but most of the time, these people, these judges and stuff who are making these decisions, they're rich. Their are family safe behind, you know, like gated communities and big walls and mansions with like huge security systems they're not like the average person whose kids are just wandering about freely. They're like safer. They they live in safe communities. They're not usually like seeing the kind of world that most people live in. And they need to be held accountable for when something like this happens because you're basically releasing a weapon back out in into society. And there needs to be some sort of chain of custody where those people are held accountable. And if that's the case, We will see how many of them get let back out because I guarantee you, if it's like some personal accountability in there, these judges and things, these like, what are they like?
2: Parole board members. Yeah, yeah.
1: they're gonna be like second guessing. They're gonna be like, do we really feel like if it was our kid out there, do we really feel like comfortable with Raymond Moody? driving down the same street that my teenage daughter is walking down? I don't think so. Let's keep well, them here. This was
2: a California prison, right? Yeah. So this, so the parole board was in California going, we're going to release him to Georgetown, South Carolina? Exactly. Sure, send him. Let, let me ask you this. If that person was being released into their community, into their city or town in California, you think they would have came up with the same answer?
1: Yeah, because that this, this is California, man. This is California. This happens all the time. They have some of the most like lax parole laws Ever, It's California. So they absolutely I, I, would.
2: I have a strong suspicion that if one of these parole board members looked and saw that this sex offender was scheduled to be released into their like a street over. Oh, yeah. From where they live, they might take they might take a second look at it.
1: But they're not getting released a street over from where they live. Right. Because these people all live like they have money. They like especially these judges and stuff. They're like I said, they're living in safe communities. They're not releasing sex offender. Level well, that's pre- my
2: point, though.
1: It's ridiculous.
2: That's my point. That's my point, because they're being released to another state where it's no longer their problem. But to bring it back home to what's really important here, bittersweet thing, because, yes, Brittany's family now has some resolution, which a lot of families out there do not have. So I'm I'm relieved in that sense. But uh, I also just want to send my thoughts out to them because this just happened and they're going through it right now. And, you know, now they know what happened to Brittany, but it doesn't change the fact that they'll never see her again. And so we're really thinking about them. We're, we're thinking about everybody involved with this case, including Mr. Taylor, who had went through the ringer on this one unjustly. So we're thinking about everyone. It's a terrible situation. There's no winners here. I am glad to see, like you had said, which is a great point that Mr. Moody, or I should say Moody, not Mr., uh, is off the streets once again. And let's hope this time he stays there. But I'm thinking about the family and I'm hoping everyone's staying safe out there.
1: All right, guys, we will see you next week starting a brand new case. Follow us on social media. Derek's going to tell you where.
2: At Crime Weekly Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow our coffee channel as well at at Drink Criminal Coffee. And that's on Instagram and at Drink Criminal on Twitter.
1: Thank you guys so much. See you next week. Until then, stay safe. Bye.
2: Bye. Stay safe. Bye.